Lord, no matter what's going on around us, no matter what circumstance or uncertainty we face, you are good and you are kind and you care for each one of us. Lord, today and in the Sundays to follow, would you please help us grasp the full extent of your love for us? Take us beyond knowledge. Take us into experience so that we might be transformed from the inside out. For we ask it in your precious name. Amen. Well, this is by far an interesting experience. <laughs> I am going to uh, do my best to try to um, acknowledge the 20 or so people who are here, as well as the who knows how many who are out there as well. So we'll give this a try and see how well it goes. Thanks for spreading out. Appreciate that. Well, today we are starting our sermon series that's actually inside of a sermon series. Uh, you may remember how we, we got to this place. Um, David Henderson uh, asked us to text in our responses to the question of what barriers do we face in experiencing God's love? And as I looked out over those amazing comments, I, I couldn't help but think about how, how these responses are not just anonymous respondents from a Gallup survey. This is us. This data relates to you and me. And so I have a feeling that, that this sermon series within a sermon series is going to be spiritually pivotal for, me, for many of us because we are the ones who chose the topics. Now I say it's a sermon series within a series because as you remember the last couple of months we have been going at, taking a deep dive into God's love, his beautiful, endless, uh, stable love for each and every one of us. So now we're going to keep that in mind, but we're going to take a look at the barriers that keep us from experiencing that love. So I have a guess that some folks here are going to find out, well, this is not my barrier. So if it's not your barrier today or next week or any week that follows, if it's not your barrier, please don't check out, okay? See this as a chance for God to be equipping you to better understand and love someone else in our congregation. And if somebody comes to mind and you say, wow, this sermon really fits for so-and-so, give them a call. Connect with them. Listen to their heart. Pray for them. Because they might be doing the same thing for you next week. Because this is a sermon series designed by us. Now today's barrier is one of the most frequently mentioned that we all brought out in some way. It's most frequently mentioned, and it's one with which I am intimately familiar because it's the one, no one's over there, forget that. <laughs> Just force a habit, force a habit. <laughs> it's, the one, it's the one I'm most familiar with because it's the one I've lived with all my life. It is the barrier of shame. And I think that the best thing for me to do is to, is to uh, for those who aren't familiar with it, is to try to define it a little bit. And I want to begin by comparing and contrasting guilt with shame and see if we can come up with an understanding of what it is. Guilt says, there's something wrong with what I did. Shame says, there's something wrong with who I am. Guilt results when behavior is exposed and deemed to be wrong. Shame results when self is exposed and deemed to be wrong. Now think about a basketball game for a minute here. Uh, guilt is stepping, you stepping out of bounds, but shame is you not being able to get the ball in the basket no matter how hard you try. 
The greatest need in guilt is for forgiveness, and the greatest need in shame is for acceptance. So guilt is about doing. It is a negative emotion related to defective behavior. Shame is about being. It is a negative emotion relating to defective personhood. It comes from being exposed, from feeling like everyone is seeing where you are lacking and not able to meet the particular standard. Unlike guilt, shame cannot be compartmentalized and put off on one side of life because shame affects the entire person. And so rather than say, I did something wrong, the shamed person says, I'm always wrong, or I really messed up, or I am a mess. Now, speaking as one who is uh, from a formerly shamed, <laughs> shame-bound background, let me share with you how it worked out for me and how it still plays out for me some, sometimes as old habits come back to me. So when I fail at something, and I put that word fail in quotes because others wouldn't see it as failure, but I think it's failure because I fall short of a particular mark in my own head. When I fail at something, I equate that with being useless, and I have to fight the feelings that I can't do anything right. And when I don't, and when I'm not able to accomplish a job well, like fix the car or replace an electrical circuit, things that a lot of people can't do, but when I can't do that, I have to fight the conclusion that I am actually worthless. Because shame-bound people cannot separate what they do from who they are. Shame steals a person's joy, robs them of zeal for life, and, and takes them away from any kind of close relationship that they could have. Shame tears a person in two because the close relationship they desire, the close relationship they need, is the very thing they fear the most. Because they know, they know that once you get to know them, you're going to reject them. And that's why shame is such an effective barrier against experiencing God's love, because <laughs> he's just going to reject me. I know that once he, he knows what's going on inside of me. Now, let me be clear here, okay, because not all shame is created equal, all right? I, I think of shame along a spectrum. On one side of the spectrum, it's good shame. It's, it's constructive shame, healthy shame. On the other side is an unhealthy, destructive shame, okay? We're not going to talk about the healthy and constructive shame. That's, that's we also call that modesty. That, that's an appropriate covering. That's an appropriate exposure. It gives us the right kind of boundaries and relationships and culture. We're not going to talk about that today. We're going to talk about the destructive kind of shame. And even in that, we're just going to be scraping the surface, okay? Because there's so much more here. But this is kind of an introduction to it for us and how God meets us in the midst of that. Now, the first experience that we find in shame comes very early in the Bible, Genesis chapters 2 and 3. In Genesis 2, 21 through 25, there's this marvelous statement about what life was like before the fall, before, before sin entered the world. And it's summarized with this beautiful statement in verse 25. Now, the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. For a moment... Leave the literal behind and enter into the poetic with me. Because literally, they, they were naked in body, but poetically, they were also naked in personality, weren't they? They trusted each other. They were fully comfortable with each other. Everything about their being was fully exposed to one another, fully exposed to God, and they felt no shame. They had no desire to hide anything. They knew that of all the creatures in the world, remember Adam has just named everything out there, of all the creatures in the world, they knew that they were made for each other by a God who loved them deeply. 
Now, this, this shame-free place was not going to last long. When they disobeyed God, they did something wrong. But notice what they hid in response to their action. If they had felt guilt, they would have hid the core of the forbidden fruit. But rather than hide the core, they hid themselves. In seven short verses, they went from feeling no shame to hiding from one another and hiding from God. When God asked Adam, Adam, did you eat from the tree I told you not to eat from? His response is so telling. He says, it was the woman you gave me. I'm not the only one at fault. You guys are at fault too. I can't be alone in this. See, when Adam heard God's question, he felt the two-edged pain of sin. Not only did he know that, that he had done something wrong, but now he knows that there's something wrong in him. When we feel publicly exposed, shame rushes in, okay? And, and if we can't cover that up quickly enough, if we can't find a way to, to hide it again, then, then there's, a, there's a cousin of shame that comes in right on shame's heels, and that is contempt. Now, to make this easier to understand, let me use myself as an illustration again, okay? Because like Adam, when I felt exposed and I believed my worthlessness was on display for everybody to see, I got angry and I would quickly feel contempt for myself. And the way I would respond to that is that I would berate myself. I would just get angry at myself because somebody had to be punished for what just happened, right? I mean, now I don't know why I felt that, but that's what I felt. So there was that going on. And the berating was also intended to help me do better so that I wouldn't make this mistake again. It would make me stronger, I thought. I didn't realize was <laughs> everything I was doing was just reinforcing the lie and causing me to be bound to shame all the longer. What I feared most was that my insufficiency and my lack would be publicly exposed. And I thought that once Anne or my wife, Anne or anyone saw it, that they would say, ah, it's what I suspected. The dude's a loser. He can't do anything right. And I would be rejected. How can I describe the constant companion of shame to those that haven't experienced it? I mean, everybody experiences shame somewhere, but, but this is a different thing. This is a destructive thing. How do I describe it? It's kind of like having your most embarrassing moment videotaped and then adding to that videotape your name, your address, and your cell phone number with an invitation to text you with your thoughts and then placing that as a commercial during the Super Bowl. It, it, it's, kind, it's kind of like having your most uh, fearful, most frustrating moment go viral on Twitter. But it's more than that, too, because it's not just about what you did. It's about who you are. So the result of that is that your identity is run through the shredder every time this happens. And it's not fun. It's not enjoyable. And the fastest way to find relief is to hide what was just, what was just revealed. And if you cannot re-hide what was just revealed, the fastest way to find relief is to grab the camera and turn it on to somebody else. And that's what I would always do. That's what Adam did, right? Camera was on him. Did you eat from the tree? He takes the camera. It's your fault and it's her fault too. I would do that. Often it came through with me uh, telling Anne something she had done, some petty thing she had made a mistake on three years before, you know, so that I didn't have to be the only one who was lacking, the only one who was making mistakes. Because it can't just be me that's wrong all the time, can it? 
Shame destroys relationships. It destroys the relationship we have with one another. It destroys the relationship we have with God. It destroys those relationships because the very thing we want is the very thing we fear the most. I mean, how is it possible to have a close relationship with one who knows you fully and accepts you completely when you know and you believe that you are intrinsically flawed and unacceptable? At some point, they're going to find out that, that fatal flaw, and then it's all over. Shame is such a, an effective barrier that the evil one employs it on a regular basis. And shame is nothing more than just based upon a lie. And we see this lie appear from the evil one's mouth himself early on. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, Did God really say you must not eat the fruit of any trees of the garden? Now, of course, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit in the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing good, knowing both good and evil. The same pattern is used with us today. Did God really say that he loves you unconditionally? <laughs> That's not true. How could God love someone who's proven himself to be just like you? How could God love a person like you? That little lie is the seed of unacceptability, and that lie can be planted at any time in our lives. If we're older, if we're in our adult years, that lie can be planted by a sin we do or a sin done against us. If we're in our younger childhood years, that lie can be planted by a sin we do, by a sin that's done against us, or by any number of other times where we consistently fall short of a standard. We fall short of a standard in our, in our school, fall short of a standard in our culture, in our society, from our family, an expectation we have. We do it again and again, and the seed of unacceptability is planted in our hearts. My seed was planted early on. I don't know where it came from. It really doesn't matter where it came from. It was just there. It took root, and it bore fruit early. Now, I was 18 years old when uh, Jesus brought me to faith. And from that point, it took me about 20 years before I was able to see that I had built my life and my understanding of myself on a lie. It took me 20 years before I woke up and started to try to apply an herbicide to this seed of unacceptability. And, and as I applied the herbicide, I got to tell you, it didn't die quickly. This is a really strong seed. It, it doesn't go away. It just keeps coming back and keeps coming back. Now, it decreases over time as you apply the herbicide, but it doesn't just turn off like that. The herbicide that kills the seed is found in God's truth. Let me just give you one little piece of it. Psalm 139, looking at verse 17. How precious are your thoughts concerning me, O God. They cannot be numbered. If I were to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, you are still with me. This is just one expression of how God relates to us, singing over us, loving us. I mean, think about it. He's like a doting new father, holding that newborn child in his hands. Yeah, every thought he has about you is precious. 
I mean, even when you, no, no matter what you do, even if you wake him up at 2 o'clock in the morning and you throw up all over your new shirt just as you were about to go out to see grandparents, I mean, he, 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 when you wake up, he's still with you because he's not leaving in disgust. He loves you. The shame we carry looks like an obstacle. It looks like a barrier to experiencing God, God's love. But for those who are in Christ, the barrier doesn't actually exist. Because that which may look like an obstacle is really just proof that our God is unstoppable. Shame-bound people are forced to adapt their lives. I want to be very careful. Listen to this. Shame-bound people are forced to adapt their lives to fit the lie they have believed so that they can survive the lie with less pain. Rather than be the people God made us to be and live in the indestructible freedom of our identity in Christ, rather than do that, we adapt to become the people we think we have to be in order to avoid the pain of having our identity shredded again. The authentic self, our authentic self, is the person God made us to be in Jesus Christ. Our adaptive self is the person we make ourselves to be so that we can at least live in some way within the sin that we have in our hearts. That which looks like an obstacle is not the one, is not an obstacle to God. Listen to what one, other, one writer says, the writer of Hebrews, in the opening verses of chapter 12. He, he's just given us all chapter 11, all these people of faith have come along. Listen to what he says here. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, in other words, these are people who have believed in God's promises, believed what God said, even when they didn't see evidence, hard evidence of it in front of them, people who believe believing in God's promises, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. For our case today, it's the sin that leads us to live in shame. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. That's a different race for each of us in so many ways. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion, the victor, who initiates, starts, perfects, and completes our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. The joy that awaited Jesus was the joy of knowing that God's kingdom was breaking in on this fallen world right now and the anticipation of being in full fellowship with you and with me. It was this joy. He set his eyes on that joy, and that's the joy that allowed him to go through the shame of the cross. And so on that cross, Jesus absorbed the full force of shame's fury so that we wouldn't have to. And I wish we had time to go along and talk about what that shame was for Jesus. Well, it would be, we're going to keep moving on here. This is amazing stuff. God told Isaiah about Jesus centuries before Jesus came, before he was born. And he described it. Here's just a, a short description from Isaiah 53. Yet it was our weaknesses he, Jesus, carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. 
Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. You know what God's response was to Adam and Eve after they disobeyed him? Yeah, we know about the curses in chapter 3 and all, but, but God's personal response to Adam and Eve came in chapter 3, verse 21. The Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. Blood was spilled. Animals were sacrificed in order to cover human shame. This is just a temporary fix at the time, but it was also a picture of, of what was to come, a sacrificial system in the Old Testament, and a picture of what was to come as Jesus would shed his blood to cover our shame permanently. Following his own sacrifice on the cross, Jesus now says to Adam and Eve, he now says to you and to me, it is finished. It is safe to come out of hiding now. I have covered your shame. I have given you my freedom. You have new life forever. My... Uh, personal turning point came to me uh, a little while along as I acknowledged the truth of God's word in my life and I began to apply it to my life. So what I did was I began to acknowledge that um, the truth that without Jesus, I am lacking. I, I'm all screwed up. I got all kinds of messes in me, right? And, and that's okay. That's just, that's just who I am in the fallen, sinful world. And I can't do a thing to fix it. And I began to acknowledge the truth and embrace the truth that in Christ, God takes my lack and he forgives it and he covers it over and he fills it up in Christ. This is all from him. It is not from me. And so, and so in Christ, my shame is gone. Because Jesus fully and wholly and energetically embraces and accepts me as his own. This is not a switch that is simply turned on. What I'm talking about is really hard for people like me to grasp because, because we have so fully bought into the tempter's lie that while we can read words about how God's thoughts about me are precious, we can read words about how much he loves us, we say, well, yeah, that might be true for others, but it's not going to be true for me. I mean, how is it possible how could anything be strong enough to overpower the shame we feel and the exposure we fear? The answer to that question might be found in perspective. From our earthly perspective, the sun and the moon appear to be the exact same size, don't they? I mean, we see them in the sky at the same time sometimes, and, and anytime there is a total eclipse of the sun, boy, that moon just perfectly covers the size of the sun so that you can see the, 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 the light shooting out from the edges of the moon. It's beautiful. It looks like the same size. It feels like the same size. But what's the truth? Well, the truth is that the sun is about 865,000 miles in diameter, and the, the moon is just over 2,000 miles in diameter. The truth is that if the sun were hollow, it would hold about 64,300,000 moons. The sun's mass is about 27 million times greater than the moon, and its brightness is 450,000 times brighter than the moon. 
How can we get our minds around such astronomical differences? Well, maybe this short video will help. Have you ever wondered about the scale of the solar system? So, imagine this soccer ball, the football here, represents the Earth. How big would the moon be on this scale? About as big as this tennis ball. So, the moon is about a quarter of the diameter of the Earth. And how far apart would they be? About that far. And how big would the sun be on this scale? Approximately twice the size of the houses in the background over there. It wouldn't be able to fit in the gap between the Earth and the Moon. In fact, it's three, over three and a half times larger than that. And on this scale, it would be approximately 2.4 kilometers, or about one and a half miles away. The Sun is pretty big. They are not the same size. Now what if we were to say that the moon is like our sin, the moon is like the shame we feel, and the sun is like God's love? If we say that we are in no way diminishing the weight of our sin, we are in no way diminishing the gravitas, because the moon is real and it is weighty and it is significant, it influences our lives. What we're doing when we say that is we are elevating God's love to the proper place. Because God's love is greater than any sin. And because that, it's the reason God's love easily overpowers the barrier of shame that you and I feel. You know, we tend to think that when we sin, God doesn't love us anymore. He doesn't like us. And he turns his back and he gets all frustrated and disgusted with us. But you know, the reality is that while we sin, our sin does, does impact the intimacy of our relationship with God. It does not impact his love for us. Like the sun, it is constant. So God loves you before you sin, while you sin, after you sin, and after you confess and repent of your sin. Because God accepts you as you are and loves you too much to let you remain that way. So hear the good news. Your shame is removed by God who graciously pours out his love to you in unmeasurable ways. That's the scandalous grace of the gospel of Jesus. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. We didn't bring it on for ourselves. It just came to us because of faith. We believe. And so we join with that young father in the gospels who says, Lord, I do believe, but help my unbelief. And God has lift, given us a way to help that unbelief, a way that we can actually experience his love on a day-to-day -day basis if we're willing to accept it. 
Until Jesus returns, the only way a shame-bound person can know God's love is when we experience it in a worship context. Maybe we're in a corporate, uh, corporate context, we're singing, and we just, we're just suddenly overwhelmed by a sense of God's presence, His love, or maybe it's individual, we're watching a sunrise, we're out on a hike or something, and it just comes in. It, it's periodic, and we don't know when it's going to happen again. We can experience it that way. Or we can experience it through the people God has placed in our lives, His people that He's placed in our lives. It took me more than 20 years to realize it, but I have come to experientially know God's love through my wife, Anne, and her love for me. <laughs> when, when, when I told her that I was going to, going to say this, she said, ha! Because <laughs> <Like, laughs> she, she hasn't loved me perfectly. She knows she hasn't loved me perfectly, but she has loved me consistently. That love has always been there. There have been times when our relationship has been a bit cold because of my sin or her sin or something we did, we offended each other. But no matter what was going on there, her love for me has been consistent, and I have begun to see a picture of God's love through her. Now, God's love for us doesn't have to just come through family members. It comes through God's people, our spiritual family, his household as well, through the church. And in the months ahead, we are going to be taking time to talk about that about how we can love one another and care for one another and develop those relationships so that we can experience God's amazing love through one another. Shame is a relational problem. It requires a relational response, and God gives us that response through his people as we learn to love and accept one another in Jesus' name. All right, I'm going to wrap up here. Shame works its way to every crevice of our mind, and because it's in every crevice of our mind, it works its way into every relationship that we have, and it's seen somewhere in everything. And because it's everywhere in our minds, it requires a renewing of the mind to be able to find a, a, a solution to this barrier. We renew that mind by building off of God's truth instead of reinforcing the evil one's lies. Now, everyone is going to have a little different way to go, and I'm going to be focusing on, on people who are shame-bound right now, which is many in our congregation. Everyone's going to have a different way to go, but this was my path, and this is what really was helpful to me. For me, it meant beginning to rest in the truth that God could choose me. It didn't matter to God that I couldn't make those teams. It couldn't, didn't matter to God that I, I couldn't make a basket or a touchdown. I couldn't swing and hit the ball. It didn't matter to God that I couldn't answer the questions right and plot the graph correctly so that I ended up with a duck at the end of the algebra thing and I held up my paper and was made fun of in class. It didn't matter to God that I couldn't parse the verb. It didn't matter to God that I couldn't get the term paper done well. D minus. These are all the different things, and I got a bunch of them, all the different things in my life that I've lined up to prove that I am inadequate, that I don't measure up. It didn't matter to God. God chooses me for me. So, to my shame-bound friends, I want you to know, God loves you, and he chooses you for you. You are beautiful in his sight. And he thinks about you every day, all day long with precious, precious thoughts. And so your job and my job and our task together 
is to encourage each other to build off the truth of what the Scripture says is true and then learn to simply rest in it. So, here's what I'd like us to do. Those who struggle with shame as a barrier between now and Easter, let's make up a, a Lenten discipline for ourselves here, okay? I would love for you to memorize John 15, 16 and repeat it five times every day. And here are the triggers for repeating this, this passage, okay? Uh, when you wake up, because we all need triggers. Oh yeah, I'm supposed to do that. When we wake up, before you get out of bed, before any meal that you eat, not snacks, just meals, <laughs> and before you go to bed, Say this verse, John 15, 16, Jesus is speaking, he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Along the way, you can speak that verse as it is or make it personal and say, God chose me to go and bear fruit. And think about that. He chose you because he values you and he gave you a task, which is a pretty significant task. And the cool thing is, is it's not up to you to do it. Like the branch that goes in the vine, the only way you're going to bear fruit is if you are connected to him and he's going to do the work through you. So it's guaranteed it's going to happen. That is so cool. He values you and he's given you an important task. So say the verse or personalize the verse or just make it simple. Jesus chose me. Wow. Five times a day between now and Easter and allow the Holy Spirit in you to begin applying the herbicide to the seed that has so long dominated your life. Remember, the sun is far more significant than the moon. That sun is far more significant than the moon. God loves you before you sin, while you sin, after you sin, and after you repent of the sin. You are fully acceptable in his eyes because of Jesus Christ. He accepts you as you are and loves you too much to let you remain there. Would you please pray with me? Lord, help us define ourselves radically as those who are loved by you. More than anything else, let that be the thing that defines us. We know that loved people love people. And so we want to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is your love for us so that we can be filled to the measure of all your fullness and in so doing, be empowered to express your love to others around our world. Help us let go of the lies and the identity that we adapted to meet those lies and help us then embrace your truth believing that we are who you say we are. In Christ's name, amen.